Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for coming out on this uh, Father's Day. Uh, God was especially uh, good to me uh, this past week. Uh, On Wednesday morning, an old friend uh, came to Living Water to put some bags together uh, for our food pantry. I want to show you a picture of them. It's right there. Uh, That young man in in the middle is an amazing young man. He's uh, 27 years old. He was born in uh, England, and he is uh, challenged with autism. His name is Stephen Thomas. And uh, I first met Stefan uh, back in 2006 when uh, his sister Kim, his mother mom, or his mother Karen, uh, moved to Harrisburg with his dad Andrew so Andrew could be our first uh, worship pastor. And uh, for nine years, uh, Stefan was a, a part of our church family. And uh, as I reflect on those years, they were some of my best ministry years that I'd ever experienced. Uh, I, just everything about Stefan was wonderful. I, I could remember he would, he would show up to church uh, wearing a, a VeggieTales t-shirt. He was probably, you know, maybe 10 at the time or something like that. He carried a, a, a Tupperware container full of pennies. And he would come into his dad's office, he'd dump out the pennies, and he would sit on the floor for hours uh, counting those pennies. Uh, during the service, uh, he would sit in the back row, specifically he would sit way over there in the back row, and uh, he'd be with his mom, and he would, uh, during the service, he would have Elmer's glue, and he would spread the Elmer's glue on his hand, he'd wait for the Elmer's glue to dry, and then he would peel off all of the glue from his hand and throw it on the ground, and at that time, Mike Bongo was our church custodian, so Mike always knew that Stefan was in the service, and where he was sitting because of the white pile of dried glue. Uh, uh, during the worship service at, at times, uh, Stefan would decide that uh, just sitting in, in the audience in, in the church family wasn't enough. And he would get up in the middle of the service. He'd come up on stage. Uh, some of you will remember this. He would sit on our drummer, Jay Cagno's lap. Jay is like maybe 120 pounds soaking wet. And Stefan would sit on his lap and help him play uh, the drums. And other times, uh, when my message went a little too long, in the very back, and some of you will remember this, you would hear in, in this, uh, this young autistic boy going, Done, Pastor Mike, done! <laughs> don't, don't try that, please, all right? <laughs> Only Stefan got away with that, but... Everything, uh, stop. So that's just crying. <laughs> uh, everything about that uh, was beautiful. And uh, I am so incredibly thankful uh, because Stephen helped Living Water become a place where people could encounter Jesus, uh, regardless of, of where they were born. Uh, regardless of, of the color of their skin or the money in their wallet or their level of education or the things that they sh- struggled with or, or the physical and intellectual challenges that they might have had. You know, God used Stefan to teach me and to teach our church family that no matter what your lot is in life, that you're important to him. And because you're important to God, 
that you should be important to your brothers and sisters in the church family. They need to be loved. They need to be shown compassion, cared for, uh, challenged with the truth, regularly exposed to and and reminded of of the beautiful gospel of of Jesus Christ that that gives us hope in this world that's filled with, with hopelessness. And this is especially true for those of us who've repented of our sins and received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who by our profession of faith, the Bible tells us that that we are members of of the family of God. We're we're not just fellow attendees. We're spiritual brothers and sisters and moms and dads in this beautiful family that is led by the greatest dad of all, and that is Jesus. And how you and I, how we interact with one another, folks, it actually matters. We can't interact with one another in the way that the world interacts with one another. How you and I interact with one another, God has specific things that he wants us to do as we try to love one another. And this is what I hope that we discover this morning as we continue through this series on 1 Timothy. We're going to be in 1 Timothy 5 today. We're going to work through the the first 16 uh, verses. If uh, you have a Bible with you, open up to 1 Timothy 5 verse 1. If I have an app on your phone, use that. If you don't have either of those, there's Bibles on the tables around the room. Uh, Feel free to ask your neighbor to pass one down to you. And uh, if you use a Bible in the room, it's uh, page 992. So 1 Timothy 5 verses 1 through I thought I said 1 through 16. Uh, If you could stand, please. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than... Uh, Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation of good works. If she has brought up children and shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work, but refused to enroll younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. 
So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their household, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Several weeks ago, as we were working our way through 1 Timothy 3, we talked about the church being the family or household of God. It's in addition to being the household of God, it is the place where God's spirit and presence is most experienced. And this passage that we read today builds upon that idea of us being a family of God by, by giving us practical expressions of how God's family should work. And what it teaches can be summed up in the following idea. A gospel-centered church balances love, compassion, and truth as it seeks to care for its family members. Look again at verses 1 and 2. It says this, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. In the church, we're called to treat one another the way that we would treat our, our biological family members. And Paul uses this idea of gender and age to help Timothy understand this idea of how a family is actually supposed to work, a church family. In the church, there, there were men that would be older than Timothy. He's a young pastor, and he's supposed to teach or treat those men as if they were his dad. And there would be younger men who are younger than Timothy. He's supposed to treat them like brothers. There are going to be older women than Timothy. He's supposed to treat them like mothers. And there are going to be younger women. He's supposed to treat them like sisters. And, and by helping Timothy see the way that this church was supposed to operate in this way, it changes the dynamic in which we, we deal with people inside the church. And especially when you need to correct ungodly behavior of people. Now, if an older man did something sinful... Timothy's natural response might be to, to react very uh, hard, very firmly, very uh, maybe perhaps unkind to, to rebuke him. But if he considers the older man to be his father, Timothy's response is going to get tempered by love and respect that would have been built up over the years. And rather than going to the older man and giving him a, a tongue latching like he might very well deserve, instead, he's to offer gentle encouragement designed to change the man's behavior. Just like I need to do when my dad does foolish things. <laughs> On Father's Day, I'm about to throw my father under the bus. About a year and a half ago, two years ago, uh, Kathy and I went over to my, my parents' house. At that time, they were uh, living uh, just off of Dairy Street above the McDonald's and the Sheets that's down there by 61st Street. They lived in some townhouses up on that hill. And Kathy and I stopped by, and we uh, pulled our car into the, the driveway, and uh, we went into the house. And uh, we're having some conversation and talking and things like that. And 
over time, uh, my dad decides that he needs to, to drive down the hill, not walk down the hill, but drive down the hill, uh, to get a Diet Coke from McDonald's. Now, uh, my mom frowns upon this because she knows that Diet Coke is not necessarily good for my dad. So uh, rather than saying, hey, I'm driving down the hill to get some Diet Coke, he stealthily disappears from the conversation, goes into the garage, opens the garage door, and proceeds to back into my car. (laughs) None of us are aware of this, what's going on. Because we're inside having a conversation. We didn't know he even left. My dad comes into the house and says, Mike, can I see you outside? Like, what is going on? So uh, we go outside, and uh, I see that he is, he's backed into my 2003 white Honda Accord. And uh, it's got a dent, but what's one more dent in a 2003 Honda Accord, Right? But my dad says to me, he goes, don't tell mom. I'm like, what are we teenagers here? We got some secret we're keeping from mom? Now, at this point, my dad needs to be rebuked is what needs to happen. Not telling mom. You don't do that. But he's my dad. To anybody else, I I would have said, you're out of your mind. Don't hide things from your wife. What are you thinking? But instead, I decided that he needed to be encouraged and not rebuked. So I said, Dad, you know we can't hide this from mom. I'll go in and I'll help you tell her. so that she doesn't kill you. (laughs) And we go in, and my mom freaks out like she typically does, but he's still sitting in the front row alive. Mom's not in jail. And he continues every day to go to McDonald's and Diet Cokes. Uh, And that, brothers and sisters, that is what Paul wants Timothy to understand when it comes to dealing with people in the household of God. That, that we're to, to consider them as our family members and treat them as such. Similarly, he says, hey, Timothy, if you're going to have an interaction with a younger woman, you, you need to have this interaction in all purity. It's not only just sexual purity, but, but it's in just purity of conversation so that, that you can ultimately be beyond reproach. Now, I want you to consider the difference that it would make if we really lived out this principle. If we really considered every person who calls Living Water Community Church home, if we really considered them as members of our family, we wouldn't just leave when we don't like something. Because we don't leave our family when we're disappointed or dissatisfied. And when someone disappears, we don't just write them off. Instead, we we reach out to them, because if your brother or sister disappeared from your family, 
You're going, you're going to look for that person. We wouldn't take advantage of other people or manipulate them because in a family, you don't take advantage of people. You don't try to manipulate your mom or your dad or your brother or your sister. If someone hurts us, we're going to be quick to forgive. Why? Because in families, you have to forgive. If we do something wrong, and then in process, actually hurt somebody, we own that sin. And we ask forgiveness for that sin. Why? Because that's what you do in a family. When someone does something wrong in the family, they own what they've done wrong, and they ask forgiveness for what they've done wrong. When somebody needs help, we help them. Why? Because when our family members need help, we help our family members. When someone in our family believes a lie, we lovingly show them the truth. If there's someone in our family who's anorexic and they tell you that they think they're fat and they want to go get liposuction, you're not going to tell them, yeah, you're fat, go get liposuction. You're going to tell them this is a lie. You're believing a lie. Why do you do that? Because you, you love the person. And love what? Always, always, always rejoices in the truth. When someone is deep in sin, we don't look down on them. We most certainly don't let them continue in that sin. Because you don't let people in your family engage in behaviors that are destructive to them and destructive to the family. And that's what I mean when we say a gospel-centered church balances love and compassion and truth as it seeks to care for one another's. Now, after dealing with this concept broadly here in the first couple verses, Paul then begins to get very uh, specific. And he talks in a, in a way that the church family can care for some of the most vulnerable in the family, and that's specifically widows. And in the verses that we're about to look at here, we're going to learn that, that the church is responsible for caring for the most vulnerable in its body. And there are two specific groups in the Bible that, that God has a particular care for, a particular compassion for, and that's orphans and widows. In James 1, we read these words, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You see, from the very beginning of time, widows, Women who have lost their spouse have been some of the most vulnerable members of society, and God wants to make sure that they're taken care of. Now, the obvious question becomes, what about the guys? Why doesn't God mention widowers here? 
Men experience the, the same deep grief that women experience when they lose their spouse. And I believe that the reason why the Bible focuses on widows is, is, is not to exclude men. But the, the reason the Bible focuses more on widows is this, that there are far more widows in the world than there are widowers. Because women live longer than guys. In America, there is three times more widows in America than there are widowers. Now, why is that? Well, folks, I believe it's simply because God is gracious. I would imagine that most, not all, but most married men are just like me. I cannot imagine what it would be like for me to live without my spouse, Kathy. I don't think I could actually survive. She is significantly more resourceful and more resilient than I am. We have this conversation on a semi-regular basis where I tell her this, you better not die first because I simply will not survive without you. She's the one who keeps me sane. She's the one who keeps me encouraged. And she is the one who keeps me fed. I'm serious. I, I mean, if she's not making food, I'm heading to Mama's. I mean, that is, Mama's not my Mama's, the pizza place is where I'm going. Because Without Kathy, I'm losing my mind, I'm depressed, and I'm going to be starving, and the only way to solve that, for me, is with pizza. But in all seriousness, I believe the late theologian R.C. Sproul explains it best when he says this, widows have always experienced particular difficulties in every age and culture. They faced particular problems in the ancient world. There weren't insurance programs, annuities, or other sorts of things. Without a husband, the widow was usually the most vulnerable and helpless person in the community. Widows had little or no means of support in ancient societies. Thus, the care of widows was given to the church, both in the Old Testament and the New. Now, I am reminded of this every time I do a home-going service for a married person, regardless of whether they've been married for five years or whether they've been married for 50 years. When a husband dies, not only does the wife lose her best friend, but sometimes she loses the primary source of income. Now, certainly in the 21st century, women today have much more opportunities to support themselves than in the ancient world. But regardless, someone who's widowed in the 21st century will more than likely experience some level of financial loss. And in many cases, not only does she lose the person, not only does she have some type of financial loss, but she loses the person who helps to, to figure out how to take care of the house, the cars, many times to help take care of the finances. On top of that, 
some widows are left alone not only to raise young kids, but help these young kids process the loss of dad. And in other cases, her children have moved away and grown up, or maybe she has no children at all. And as such, the woman is typically left overwhelmed. In the 23 years of burying people, I have never, ever had a woman not say to me, Pastor Mike, what am I supposed to do now? That is the first question that comes out of their mouth every time. Joe is gone. How am I supposed to move on? Well, fortunately, God understands this. He understands the loss. He understands the grief. He understands the fear that widows experience. And and he expects his church to stand in the gap in that. But what does that actually look like? Are all widows the same? Are all situations the same? What we're going to see in this passage here is, is Paul says, no, not all widows are the same, and not all situations are the same. As a matter of fact, he gives us four groups of widows. Number one, widows who are typically older Without family members. Spouse is dead. Parents are dead. The siblings are dead. And the children are probably grown or maybe they had no kids at all. Second group. There there are widows with family members. Especially grown children or grown grandchildren. The third one he talks about is younger widows. And the fourth one... It's what I've uh, called widows gone wild. So we're briefly going to look at each one of these groups. Let's look at widows without family members first. Now, without the intervention of the church for these widows, the ladies are in deep trouble because they have no family to help them. In verse 3, we read this. Honor widows who are truly widows. Now, What does the Apostle Paul mean by making a statement like that? Is he saying there are real widows and there are wannabe widows? No, but there are widows who are uniquely dependent upon the church. And that's what he's classifying as true widows. And when it comes to the church taking care of widows... And that's the the intention of the word honor at the beginning of verse 3. There is a a set of criteria that that the woman, the widow, had to meet. The first criterion is found in verse 4. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. In other words, what, what Paul is saying is the widow's first line of defense is the family. We're going to deal with that in just a few moments. But suffice it to say, widows without family members are to be a priority for the church. And as such, that the church is to stand up and to fill the void that has been left by the spouse who has passed away. Now, 
Not having family members is only one of the qualifications. There's a second qualification for widows who are going to be supported by the church. It's there in verse 5, and it says this. She who is truly a widow, left alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. Those widows who are are supported by the church must be individuals who are are focused upon God and committed to prayer. These are Christ-centered women who they press forward in the midst of their grief. But there's more than just this to be supported by the church. The church also needs to create an opportunity for the women to serve. Look at verses 9 through 10. Let a widow be enrolled if she's not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works, if she's brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of saints, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work. Now, there's some debate upon uh, people who write commentaries and pastors and theologians on, on what this word enrolled means. It can basically have Two meanings. One means one one thought process here is is enrolled means that they're to be put on a list to be ex- assisted by the church if they meet all of those characteristics. So you meet all these characteristics, then you get to be on the list of the people who get taken care of by the church. If you don't meet these characteristics, you basically get kicked to the widow curb. Number two, the other way to look at it is enrolled may mean that they should be utilized for service because they meet these characteristics. In other words, there is, they have these set of characteristics, and you, because they have these set of characteristics, you use those characteristics of them in the church because they bring things to the table. I believe this second idea is ultimately what's going on here, that the church should figure out how to use widows within the the church itself. When you have someone who is a woman of prayer, who is trusting God in the darkest of times, who has been a a faithful wife, and that's what it means to be a wife of one husband, that you're, you're a faithful wife. If she's had children and she's raised them well, if she has a track record of showing hospitality, has served others inside and outside the church, is devoted in every good work, There's a role for them in the church. They are needed and they are valuable. Because a lot of times they'll just be at home and they're like, what do I do? And the church needs to step to the place and say, we need you. We want you. You have gifts and abilities that, that can be utilized. And we have that here at Living Water. We have a widow who is on staff coming in here almost every day caring for our church family. We have widows who who serve on our welcome team and help in our grief share ministry, who mentor younger women, who who send out encouragement cards to to people in our church family, who pray through the prayer list, who, who come in and fold all of our worship folders, who help with funerals, and the list goes on. The church needs to make opportunities so that these women can be served and cared for. And so their needs are right in front of us because we know their needs are there because they're right there with us. And then there's this strange qualification which says to be at least 60 years old. I don't know what you do with that. I I simply mean 
think it means that they need to be mature women. Uh, so I'm not even going to try to tackle that. Pastor Ben would have tackled that. I didn't graduate from Dallas Theological Seminary. So if you got a question, talk to Ben on that one. So, All right, that's the first group. Verses 4 and 8 tell us about the second group. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So here we have widows who have family members. And what God is saying here, folks, is not very complicated. But it is very convicting. If our parent becomes a widow, we have a responsibility to care for them. They may or may not have, have, have government benefits and a pension. They may or may not have, have planned for their waning years of life. They may or may not have been a good parent. It doesn't matter. None of that eliminates our responsibility. There's no caveat here. None. God was very clear in the fifth of the Ten Commandments of how we're to look at moms and dads. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land of the Lord, the, in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And in case we miss that point, there's at least seven other passages within the Old and New Testament that basically say the exact same thing. Even Jesus, the dude is hanging on the cross. He is dying for your sins and dying for my sins. He is in unbelievable agony. And he is obeying the fifth commandment by honoring his mom. Listen to what is on his mind on the cross. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, can you even imagine that? Think about what that must have been like. But when he saw her standing by, he says to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. You see, when we care for our widowed parent, 1 Timothy 4 tells us that it is pleasing to God. And when we decide that we don't need to do that, or they don't deserve us to do that, or they've caused us too much pain to do that, we're told that we have denied the faith and we are worse than an unbeliever. Now, for some of us, caring for a widowed parent is not hard at all. We've had great parents. 
who have sacrificed greatly for us, who've cared greatly for us as we're growing up. And it's a joy to serve them as they go through life without their spouse. In October of 2014, Kathy's mom died of breast cancer. Uh, Her dad, Mick, I, I love him with everything that's inside of me. Mick was very, very quiet. Uh, he's a hard worker, went to work, but not super expressive. You know, would, would rarely, you know, I don't know, ever tell you that he loves you. But he's, he's great. And when Donna died, Mick was devastated. And, and I can remember, it was shortly after her death, the first time I ever heard him say, I love you. It was a beautiful thing. And, and Kathy's one of, of four kids, and Kathy's uh, brother lives in York. Uh, her one sister lives in New Jersey. The other one lives in Maryland, and we live right down the street. And Kathy has stepped into the void. She has provided incredible care for him. She goes with him to the doctor's appointments. She helps him with, with his apartment. She cleans his apartment. Uh, when, when he can't figure out how to operate his Apple iPad, why anyone would get an 80-year-old man an Apple iPad is beyond me. <laughs> Kathy says that I'll help him then is what happens. But I mean, it, it's, a, it's a joy caring for Mick because Mick provided all his life for Kathy and her siblings. But for some of us, what I just read to you, crazy hard. Some of us have had horrific parents. Parents who have failed to provide for us. Parents who have abused us and mistreated us. Perhaps even abandoned us. So, so what does showing godliness to their own household and making some return to their parents and providing for one's relatives look like when doing something is, is painful? It could, it could ultimately be even dangerous if this person was abusive. I don't have an answer for that. But God does. And if you find yourself in that situation, it should drive you to your knees in, in fervent prayer, telling God, God, I want to obey your command. You tell me I'm to honor my father and mother. You tell me here that, that I'm to, to care for my, my widowed parent. I, I want to honor you. I want to honor them. And then you ask him to make a way, and you know what? He will do it. He can't deny himself. When, when he gives us these commands, and we come to him and say, God, I want to obey this command. Show me how to do it. He, he will provide a way. Now, I don't know what your challenging circumstances look like, but I know that God is far more powerful than any circumstance. And if we pray to God that we might obey his commands, God will work in ways that we cannot possibly imagine. And in the end, when we have obeyed him, we will know the pleasure and presence of God more than we have ever known before. Now, 
This brings us to the third group, which is found in verse 6. Well, 5 and 6. She who is truly a widow, left alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Now, in stark contrast to our first widow group, who have no one to provide for them and who have set their hope on God, here is a widow group that is, as Paul describes it, self-indulgent. I call this group widows gone wild. These widows have the cash not only to live, but to live lavishly. They aren't dependent on others, and because they're not dependent on others, they certainly are not dependent upon God. They have collected life insurance, the mortgage has been paid, the survivor benefits are showing up every month, the bank account is flush, the bucket list is long. And rather than seeking comfort in God, widows gone wild seek comfort in things and experiences. And in James chapter 5, Jesus' half-brother describes these kind of people, people who put their trust in their wealth to their own demise. He says this, You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Theologian William Hendrickson describes widows in this category in this way. He says, she went to church and seemed to listen to the reading of the word. Her lips used to move in prayer, and she was even emotionally stirred at times. Today, however, all that belongs definitely in the past. She is dressed in her happiest attire, and her purpose is to have fun and to perhaps make a good catch. Sadly, over these last 23 years, I have encountered this. Not many times, but it's happened. And I know these ladies. The husband passes away. Most of the time, unexpectedly. And rather than turning to God in her grief, she instead turns away. Perhaps because she's blaming God for the loss. And what was once important to her, no longer important. What she valued with her deceased husband is no longer valued. And like all widows, she is experiencing unimaginable pain and grief. She's not rejoicing that her husband has died. She is suffering because her husband has died. But rather than seeking this relief from God, she instead medicates the pain away through the pleasures of the world, pleasures that always promise so much, folks, and in the end, deliver so little. Now this brings us to our final group, young widows. Look again at verses 11 through 15. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. 
Besides that, they learn to be idlers going from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. Folks, when those words hit our 21st century ears, painful. We're like, whoa. This was one of these, like, you know, I could, like, stop here with three of them and just ignore the fourth one and just kind of go our own way. But what we need to remember is a couple things. First of all, the Apostle Paul, he is dealing with, with issues, especially in this case, that, 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 that were specific to those living in the first century church in Ephesus. Now, how can I say that? How can we differentiate it? Because you've got to be very careful when you do this. Because a lot of times when, when you're trying to read through the Bible, you're reading through the Bible, you find something you don't like, you, you want to make it, oh, that was a cultural issue way back then, it doesn't apply now, and you can just kick that to the curb. So you've got to be very careful with that. So when, when you want to discover whether something actually is cultural, you've got to have some evidence behind this. Well, this is what's interesting about this. How do we know that these issues are specific to the church in Ephesus? Well, here Paul says that young widowed women who are now single should marry. He's making a command that if you're young, you're widowed, you should get married. Okay? But in other letters, like 1 Corinthians, Paul's like, if you're single, stay single. Don't get married. You can be used by God in much greater ways because you don't have to worry about other people. It's just you and God and caring for others. You don't have to worry about a spouse. You don't have to worry about kids. So here Paul is saying one thing to the folks in Ephesus, saying something completely different to the folks in Corinth. The other thing that we know is in the church of Ephesus, there's false teachers. And what are the false teachers saying? The false teachers are telling people to avoid marriage. We talked about that just a couple weeks ago. So the issue that we need to focus on here isn't whether or not young widows should marry or not. That, that's not the issue. Because ultimately, here in the 21st century, it's up to them. That they're, they're, it's not wrong to not get married. It's not wrong to get married. It's up to them. The issue is more about what in the world shouldn't they do? And that's the issue we need to focus on here. Now, what they shouldn't do is abandon one's faith. They shouldn't get angry at God and, and, and say, turn their back on God. They, they, they need to stay true to their faith. And what happens, though, is when we abandon our faith, something's got to replace that. And what Paul says replaces it is laziness, gossip, and being busybodies. These are all sins that tempt people in general, but from my experience, especially tempt young people who have suffered great loss, particularly widows, young ones. And these, these temptations, folks, they're, they're understandable. Folks who lose a spouse grieve in horrific ways, and we, we need to be sensitive to that. But although they are understandable, they're not helpful. Idleness is a sin 
that leads to other sins. When we don't have productive things to do, we do bad things. Sin will fill the void. And we end up doing bad things. In Proverbs 16, 27, it says this, A worthless man plots evil, and his speech is like a scorching fire. It's from this proverb that we get the term or phrase, idle hands do the devil's work. And gossiping and being a busybody are similarly destructive, both to the individual and to the church family. And it's very interesting, in the very next verse of Psalm 16, we read this, A perverse man stirs up dissension, and a gossip separates close friends. When a young wife becomes a young widow and she experiences this unimaginable grief and God seems far away, it's natural to seek earthly relief wherever you can find it. But natural earthly relief is not what's needed. What's needed is supernatural heavenly relief, which comes from only one place, and that is Jesus. I was... uh, reading an article uh, the other day from John Piper. And uh, one of the things I learned a number of years ago uh, from, uh, about Pastor John Piper's life is that uh, Pastor John Piper and his wife uh, adopted a, a black child uh, from Columbus, Georgia in uh, 1996 in September. And when I I found that out, I was shocked because the next month in October and into the beginning of November of 1996, Kathy and I adopted our daughter, Nicole, from the very same adoption agency in Columbus, Georgia. So here are two pastors, one who's brilliant, That would be John Piper. (laughs) One who struggles to pronounce words, that would be me. Both have, at that time, adopted infant black children in their lives. And I'm reading this article that John Piper is talking about how God cares for us in the greatest challenges. And he references Jesus' words that says this, are not two sparrows sold for a penny. And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. And to explain that verse, in this article that John Piper wrote, he talked about his wife, sitting on the ground with his little daughter in her lap. And those of you in our church family who have black children, you know exactly what I'm about to say. Braiding her hair for hours on end. Watching television programs. And John Piper is saying that as my wife braided all those little rows into my daughter's hair, it reminded him that God numbers 
our hairs. And that picture resonated with me because I could remember for, for so, even to this day, Kathy still goes and braids my daughter Nicole's hair and spends hours numbering every one of those. And if Kathy can, can spend hours with Nicole because she loves Nicole, how much more does God love us? The one who doesn't just know how many braids are in the head, but how many individual hairs are in the braid. And brothers and sisters, I, I know we've been talking about widows this whole time, but this is what I, I guess I want us to take home. God cares deeply about you. And the reason that he puts these things in here and, and the reason that conviction comes at times is not because he's mean or nasty. It's because he loves us. And, and he wants us to understand that, that we have value to him. And because we have value to him, we should have value to one another. Because for as much as God has numbered the short amount of hairs that are in my head, he has numbered every one of yours. And he knows you intimately. And we are called to care for one another and to love one another, whether it be a young widow, a, 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 a widow that's lost her mind, whether it's been a widow with family, a widow without family, or whether it's just another person here in church. And we are called to love one another deeply, deeply. And that will speak to a watching world that desperately needs to know that Jesus is alive and he is hope. Let's pray. Lord God, you are good. We love you. I pray, Heavenly Father, as we uh, go through the next days and weeks and months, uh, Lord, however much time uh, you're going to allow living water to exist, allow us to walk on this earth, Father, that you would help us to love one another to care for one another, to respect one another, to, to treat one another well, Lord, uh, to, to be quick to ask forgiveness, to be quick to, to grant forgiveness, Heavenly Father. Lord, would you uh, be especially with those uh, widows that are in this room right now that are watching on television, would you, would you uh, pour your grace and mercy down upon them, Heavenly Father? Would you help us to serve them well if, Lord God, we are failing them in any way, Father, would you make that abundantly clear to us so that, Lord, we can do what you want. Father, for the, the men in this room who have lost their wives, we pray, Heavenly Father, for them. Lord God, would you comfort them? And while they might be a, a minority, uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, they are uh, equally important to you. And Lord, now as we prepare to take this offering, dear God, would you help us to be a, a generous people and Lord, would you help us to be a wise church? God, help us to use these resources that you entrust to us, uh, Lord, so that your kingdom might be built, so that your son's name might be lifted up, Lord, so that others might come to faith in you. And it's through your son's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.